80% of men in tech think that their workplace is fair, right? That's just crazy to me. 70% of women in tech recognize it is unfair. And it's so amazing to me because we just had this year where all of these things that happened, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, like really loud voices. And yet like 80% of men still think that, oh yeah, everything's fine. I'm Kelly Hoey, host of Broad Mike. I speak with the most accomplished entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders about the issues that matter in building a business. You will get the inspiration as well as the picks and shovels you need to become a better entrepreneur. Be inspired, take action, think broad. Today I'm in the studio with Matt Wallert, a behavioral psychologist, two-time entrepreneur, and a self-described cowboy boots on the ground for Microsoft Ventures on the East Coast. Matt is also the co-founder of GetRaise.com, a free service that helps women figure out if they are underpaid and what to do about it. Welcome. Thanks for having me. I also didn't put in the uh, introduction here. You're also a feminist. I am, although I've recently learned to embrace the word. It was not—I was one of those annoying, like, male feminists that's like, no, it's humanism and it's about everybody and maybe, like, I actually think, honestly, it was uh, the UN speech where she was like, no, just, like, embrace the word. I was like, okay, you're probably right. I'm probably— I I can do this. Yeah, I could do this. Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, has done it. I can do this. I can—yeah, look, I I can—it was—it's interesting. Like, I— for a long time, it was a struggle. Like, I really wanted to be like, no, this is not the right— You know, I was that kid in college that was like, affirmative action, do I really believe in it? Like, you know, is this— Like, I like the short-term effects, but do I really— How do I feel about the long-term feelings? And so I think originally, even long after I'd built Good Raise, you know, we're $2.3 billion in raises for women, and I'm still not able to call myself a feminist. Um, well, okay, let's let's talk about Get Raise. Okay. What is it? What are you doing? Uh, so it is a free tool that we built, um, that helps women figure out if they're underpaid and then do something about it. So that, uh, the first section really asks a couple of questions, where you work, how much you make, what you do. Um, we use Bureau of Labor Statistics data to sort of say, hey, there might be a gap here. Um, because, you know, we really need to get women to ask. One of the problems, um, of the gender wage gap is that women are far, far less likely to actually go ask for a raise. And then the second bit is actually about creating the right kind of raise request. And you can't see me because this is a podcast, but I'm using air quotes. Like <laughs> right is a strange word. But the, the most successful way to get a, a raise um, is really in shifting women's um, tone from a community-oriented thing. Hey, I need a raise because my son is going to college to a business value-oriented thing. I need a raise. I deserve a raise because I've done X, Y, and Z. This is how I've brought value to the business. So we actually ask some questions that generate a letter that you can give to your boss. And about 70% of the women who hand in this letter get a raise, and the average raise is about $7,000. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, this is one of those things I say, think to myself, it's like one of the reasons you can ask, right, is you're armed with data. Yeah. And you're armed with market data. And isn't this like one of the great things in terms of the promise of, you know, internet, mobile, open data, all this kind of stuff is people like you can build these kind of tools that actually affect change. Yeah, absolutely. And when we were building our first startup, um, we built a Mint.com competitor. We sold to LendingTree. It's how I sort of discovered the gender wage gap. 
we really couldn't have built GetRace at the time. The Bureau of Labor Statistics data wasn't available in a, like, updated, accurate format that we could use. Like, some of the web technologies we used didn't even exist yet. You know, so it, it is really one of those problems that, like, we newly have the ability to solve. And newly, I guess, means five years ago. So it's interesting to think about what we could solve now if we tried. <laughs> get on it. Get on it. I'm working on it. And, and when, when did you have the idea for GetRace? You know, it actually came as a reaction to to Thrive, the, the company we sold to LendingTree. So I was looking at um, some uh, data that we had. So just like Mint or other sites, we had access to people's bank accounts, did auto-budgeting, those sorts of things. And we had something that was kind of novel, something called a behavioral health score. And the idea was that um, we didn't want to just say, hey, you're rich, you get a high score, and you're poor, you get a low score. We want to say, of the money that you have, what are you doing with it? And so one of the components components was a savings rate. And we basically said, all right, savings will be the amount of money you save as a function of your income uh, every month. And when we looked at it that way, women were amazing savers. They just did so much better than men. Uh, But the problem was, as soon as we took out that as a function of how much you make, they couldn't keep up. Because the problem is, when there's a 30% pay gap, there's no way, there's no budget I can create that is going to help you save an extra 30%. And so we had just sort of sold the company to LendingTree, and and I was sort of talking to, to one of the other folks, and I was like, look, we missed the boat. We only looked at what happened once somebody got a paycheck. And for a whole population, women, minorities, there's a gap upstream of that. And we need to go do something about that. So at the next company we built, get raised. That's amazing. Absolutely amazing. Because um, you're right, that gap, you, you, how do you catch up on that? Yeah, I mean, it, and one of the pernicious things about it is it tends to happen very early in people's career. First job, second job. One of the reasons that we that you can get to this sort of $2.3 billion number is because when you get someone a $7,000 raise early in their career, right, it just repeats over and over and over every year. And every time they get a raise, because it's based on your previous salary, right, then they're getting catching up, catching up, catching up. Well, and the first time you ask for a raise and you actually get it and you're successful, that's like, oh, I can do this. That's right. What a confidence <laughs> booster, right? Um, and I can do this again, and I can do this the next time. And I've got data that says what I'm worth in the market. That's right. And And look, experience is its own form of data. When we have a positive experience doing something, that's what we look at when we think about doing it again. And so if people get into this cycle of, oh, I can ask for a promotion, I can go farther and faster, that continues to replicate itself throughout the rest of their career. That's so great. Um, so you've been the head of product for several startups. And as I said in the intro, you're a you know behavioral psychologist. How has that, you know, you sort of behavioral science... You know, I'm sort of like, I'm doing the face, the confused. <laughs> what do yeah. you mean? You're not a computer science major and you've had a career in tech? How's that happen, Matt? I mean, look, so I grew up in rural Oregon and I love computers. Like, my parents got us one very early on, but we didn't really have the money to get it fixed and we lived in the middle of nowhere. And so if it broke, like, <laughs> I was I'm taking the thing apart, you know. Like, like your bicycle or anything Yeah, exactly. Else. Like, I don't know. Um, it's so novel to me living here in New York City where you see these posters that are like, oh, yeah, for 20 bucks you can get your computer fixed. I was like, that was not the experience I had. I don't even know who I would have gone to uh, to, to ask for help. And so I, I am a techie, like I am, I'm, I am a geek, but um, my, my background in sort of a formal education sense is social psychology. I look at something called JDM, judgment, decision-making, how do people make choices? And in particular, um, I do something called competing pressures design. So how do we look at the environments in which people make choices to try and mold the decisions that they make? And I tend to work on pro-social things, so like getting a raise. So really what we asked was, 
you know, what are all of the things that we can do to help women ask in the first place? And then how can we make that as easy as possible? How can we remove all of the barriers, right? Because 10 years ago, we could have done the show. Not a podcast, because that didn't really exist, but we could have done this show. More like Dinosaur, and I would have had a sofa, and it would have been great. And I, there'd be musical guests. You would, I, have, lo- you would have loved have it. Could have been me. Who knows? <laughs> but, but, you know, we couldn't really have done this. But, but 10 years ago, I could have said, well, you can go and get the Bureau of Labor Statistics data and do this. But you would have had to, like, write to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and they would have to send it back, and you would have had to know how to read it. Like, that's There'd be some a, stamps involved yeah, and trips to the post who office. Who does that anymore? Uh, I have the worst post office on earth, so I'm like glad that I don't have to mail things. That's a lot of inhibiting pressure. It's a lot of effort, right? And what we find is like, there's no woman that doesn't want to raise, right? The problem is not that women don't recognize, hey, the— Don't, yeah, don't pay me what I'm worth, said no one ever. <laughs> no one ever. Just this never happened, right? And, and so, uh, you know, that is not—but yet that's what we go and do in the world. If you look at our marketing campaigns, you know, it's all about, like, ask, 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 ask. You know, you—like, it's all about—as if you didn't want it, like, let me convince you to do it. And— I don't think that's really the problem. The problem is it's actually really hard to ask if you've never done it before. And, you know, wage and earning is an incredibly taboo topic. You know, oh, yeah. one of the things we talked about at Thrive was if you look at a survey of things that make people uncomfortable to talk about, like finances are higher than sex. Like we are happy to talk to our friends about like, you know, hey, the sex with this girl was really great. What do you make at work? Oh, no. <laughs> never okay. having that conversation ever. So I'm, I'm like having a pause moment. Um, just think about it. Donald Trump has talked about his sex life and his ex-wives. He has not released the tax form. <laughs> See? We are so uncomfortable with it. It's just, it's such a strange American value. I have, I have many European friends who are just like, it's weird to me that you have this problem. Like, we don't have this problem. Why do you have this problem? Um, and because of that, you know, you want to ask, you have the sense you're underpaid. Great. You hear this campaign that says, go ask. And then what? Like, What do who, I ask for? What do you ask for? Who can who can you talk to that has like can help you mold and give some experience and do these things? And so I really think there is this part of Get Raised that I love that is, hey, we're just going to try and make this really easy. We're going to scaffold and structure this so that you can go and do this. You know, and one of the things that it, happens after you generate a letter is we give you a guide that's like, okay, like role play it with a friend, eat a good breakfast, get a good night's sleep the night before, like all of these things that are just like basic block and tackle stuff that we don't even think about. Um, in regard to this issue. Okay, so get raised. This is dealing with people who are part of the W-2 economy? It is. Um, And part of the reason for that is we're limited by the data that we have, right? And so when you look at things like annual salary, although what I will say is, I guess that's not necessarily... It it certainly works with salaried and hourly workers. So in it, we translate hourly... Like, you can express your pay in hours, and we can sort of compare it to national averages in salary. We do get the data in a salary sort of way, so it's a little bit tough. But, um, you know, 10 years from now, as we have more and new and different kinds of data, you can imagine, you know, iterative repetitions of these things. But people have to build them. Yeah, so it's sort of interesting thinking about how much of the economy has gone to freelance and how much of that freelance economy is women and, you know, when we will have some data on that because, again, this is – Undoubtedly, there's a gap there. Yeah, absolutely. One of my favorite new startups um, is actually here in New York called Power to Fly. And it's all pre-vetted female technical talent that you can either hire us or like they'll become the employer of record or you can just straight out employ them. Uh, And one of the reasons that I think that these kinds of things have to exist is that, you know, there are these giant gaps. I I recently worked with Payscale on a study um, that was sort of horrifying, or at least I was horrified, um, 
you know, 80% of men in tech think that their workplace is, is fair, right? That's just crazy to me, right? 70% of women in tech recognize it is unfair, right? And so you have this massive gap between the population that's affected and the people who have the power to go and change it, who are the dominant majority in the workplace and are just like, oh yeah, everything's fine. And it's so amazing to me because we just had this year where, you know, like Alan Powell, like I have, we have all of these things that happened, you know, Sheryl Sandberg, like really loud voices. And yet only 80%, like, like 80% of men still think that like, oh yeah, everything's fine. I'm like, what is going what, on? What are you smoking? Because I'd really like some <laughs> on a bad day. You yeah. know, seriously, some of those guys. And, and I also too, I think, I think I, when I look at it, particularly with my background coming from um, legal field, you know, kind of Wall Street stuff, when we see some of the best companies now for women, it's American Express. It's B&Y Mellon. This is according to Nita Borg Institute. It's Goldman Sachs. If you're a woman in tech, those are your three, there's three of your top options, right? And if the tech industry doesn't realize that it's going to cost them millions of dollars and decades to turn around bad behavior, like get it right from the start. Well, and I think that, like, one of the things that's unique about those financial institutions has to do with sort of, like, the coolness of the job, right? Those are, in tech, those are three tremendously unsexy sort of, like, tech options. But I actually think that that's part of the reason that they've got it right. They spent more time, like, actually solving the problem than they did trying to produce a really cool-looking T-shirt. Right. Right? I mean, I think that— Well, and and decades of having problems keeping women in minorities and realizing, oops, we're public companies, we got to do something about this, and you throw millions of dollars at it since, you know, probably the 80s. There's a key point in there, which is public company, too, I think. You know, uh, Kara Swisher was talking at at, uh, VentureCars yesterday about sort of we don't really hold some of the non-public companies accountable for the actions of their CEOs and things. And she was sort of citing all of these cases where all white, all white male boards and, you know, um, you know, bad behavior of their CEOs uh, gets sort of not punished because there's no diversity and there's no public accountability. And so she was talking about how do we hold these people's feet to the fire when they're not publicly traded, right, when we don't have the sort of financial uh, wherewithal. You know, it's amazing to me, it's amazing to me um, that some of the, uh, without putting too fine of a point on it, a very popular swiping dating app, right? Like, obviously, like, lost a female co-founder at the beginning because her her co-founder did horrible, horrible things. And we can read these texts and go, these are massively inappropriate. And yet they're still super successful in the market. Like, right. we as consumers need to vote uh, sort of with our feet. I think it's great that, that Whitney has gone on to make uh, sort of Bumble in that, like, only women can send messages. Like, this is a great, like, reaction to that kind of thing. And I hope that that we can help consumers vote with their feet and sort of go to these places. I mean, that's – I'm so glad you raised that because I think there is that point and And it's because at the end of the day, we as the consumers are fueling things, right? Like, we heard for years that American Apparel, you know, the CEO was was horrific, yet we still go in there because, you know, there's a sale or it's a cute T-shirt or whatever else. And we don't see a change in the CEO until the stock price. But we, the consumers, are fueling that stock price. That's right. That's right. And And startups that aren't publicly traded don't have that stock price to be sort of measured against. We still need to be voting with our feet. We still need to be calling for that. You know, I think the press is a is a great example of this. I mean, I think Kara has done a good job of this and the others have done a good job of this of sort of saying like, hey, even if there isn't a sort of um, 
you know, a stock market ticker that I can watch, I, as a press person, can still shed light on these kinds of things. And I think we need more of that. I think we do, you know, I don't like the word public shaming, right? Because I don't think we should be shaming people. But I do think that when people take irresponsible actions, we need to sort of have a public discussion about that. When when it doesn't represent your values, Right. right? And I always kind of... I'm going to say vote that way. I mean, we get, what, once every four years you get to vote. And we can all say, oh, gee, every once in a while we get to do this. But every day we make decisions with our dollars. Every day. So what's your, what's your big impact, your hope that Get Raised has? Well, look, I mean, uh, uh, obviously I want to close the gender wage gap. I, I, I love to work myself out of a job, right? I want to build only tools that shouldn't have to exist later on because they solve the problem that they were intended to solve. So I look forward to the day that we don't have to keep get, uh, get raised up. You know, I am working on something we haven't released yet. Um, this is a name in your company, like, obsolete. <laughs> you just create right, just everything just goes away, That's, which is great. I'm happy for that. Um, we, I am working actually a new, on a new project because um, in the same way that I sort of, from d- looking at the data of Thrive, came Get Raised, one of the things I've been reflecting a lot on recently is sort of the this 80% of men don't even recognize it's a problem portion, right? The Get Raised is great. I love it. I don't mean this to sound negative about it. Obviously, $2.3 billion I'm, I'm super chuffed about. But um, I also think that putting the onus on women, right? Here you are being actively stereotyped against, actively disadvantaged, and how arrogant is it that Matt Wallard, this, like, you know, white guy comes and says, well, you should really ask. Let me give you this tool so that you can, like, you know, take action. And we need people to take action, right? I'm, I'm a pragmatist. I need Get Raised to exist. But the next thing that we're building is actually addressed at men. Um, we're trying to look at how can we actually get men to step up and participate because as the people benefiting sort of from this uh, uh, stereotype that's going on and, and some of these disadvantages, like, it is incumbent on us to be the ones to go change that, right? We and, and before you have, you know, daughters and you're like, oh, now I realize when they, you know, kind of had the come to Jesus moment. Exactly. And look, I also, I'm not, people have been very critical of the come to Jesus moment. Um, there was, a, there was a, a moment a few years ago at Grace Hopper where they had the first sort of male anti plenary and there was some anger that, that when asked why they were feminists, most people sort of said, my sister, my, my, my daughter, et cetera. I can't. I, res- I think women have the right to be angry. I'd be angry. You're being actively discriminated against. You should be angry. But I also think that, like, how many people care about breast cancer until they know somebody with breast cancer, right? I don't think that throwing bricks at people because they don't realize this is a problem until they have an aha moment is the right way to go. I just want to create more of those aha moments, right? right. I don't want it to well, be— Well, I just always think it's funny when some guy is married to a very accomplished woman and then he doesn't have the aha moment until they have a daughter. And I'm like, really? You're really? married to someone? so <laughs> You didn't have that aha moment when you started. Yeah. We all have mothers. Most well, most of us have somewhere. We all have mothers, biologically speaking. And so, you know, I I want to see us. And the next thing that we're working on really does have to do with how to create more of those aha moments because I think that's key. I think we have to. And I might not have said this, you know, two months ago, but but in the wake of these survey results, with eighty percent of tech men feeling like their workplace is fair. Man, I think we got to go create some aha moments. Oh yeah, some real aha moments there. So, so on that, in terms of, and you've touched on this, men is the leaders, the power brokers, gatekeepers. You know, all of this kind of stuff. You know, before we have your next tech product, how do we get more men in this conversation? Well, uh, so I have so many feelings about this, right? I. Uh, 
in the same way I recognized earlier, like I want to support women's ability to be angry. And I actually was at an event recently that was a little kumbaya and I sort of said like, hey, it's like women should be allowed to be angry. You're sort of encouraging them to, to take this in stride. They should be allowed to just be pissed off. But I do, you know, on the days that you're not pissed off, inviting them into the conversation probably helps, right? And I know how uh, hard that can be. But how, I think, but how do you get men in the room? Like how do you get men to care to get in the room? So I think there's a couple of things that, that we can do. Some of it's creating opportunities. Um, you know, just like I talked about get raised, no woman doesn't want to be paid fairly. It's all about removing barriers. It's about removing barriers to men being in the room. How easy can you make it for men to take action? And I know that sounds like I'm a pragmatist. There are many feminists who yell at me because they're like, why are you making it easy for men to take action? Action should be hard and that's okay. And I'm like, I hear you, but practically speaking, if you make it easier, more people will do it. Um, you know, I'm often reminded, uh, there's this great Studs Terkel interview with a guy named C.P. Ellis, um, who's a member of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, member of the Ku Klux Klan, leads the Ku Klux Klan in, 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 his, in his town. Town's going to desegregate. Uh, he's obviously burning things and doing all the things that they do. And this amazing thing happens, which is they're going to have this public dialogue about the right way to seg- uh, desegregate. And the, they elect a, a chair who's this, this uh, black woman, and she invites him to be the co-chair. And it's this amazing revelatory moment. And he actually goes on to leave the Ku Klux Klan and become a labor organizer because what he recognizes is the reason I participated in the Ku Klux Klan is because I wanted to feel like a part of something and powerful and, and have agency. And I picked this really horrific thing. And there are these other places over here where, hey, it's not, I'm not really angry at black people. I'm angry at poverty. I'm angry at some of these other social issues. And there are better ways to address this. And what an interesting, like, could we take the same tolerance uh, to our, our, our sort of feminist fight? Could we really say to the, like, the hardest core people who maybe are not negative on women, but at least are not as, as sort of enlightened as we'd like them to be and invite them into the room and say, hey, you can take agency, you can be powerful, you can help out here. Um, and I know not everybody loves this message, but as a sort of pragmatist, I think that that's one way to get men in the room is to say, hey, you have a voice and, and we'd like your help in making this decision. All right. I want to go back to your your product development hat. Yes, let's, ma'am. Uh, go back, let's go back to that one uh, for a second. Any recommendations for a founder who's about to begin the product development process? You know, I think you want to be systematic and strategic about it. I think um, one of the things I talk a lot about, I do about 30 or 40 talks a year, and one of the things I talk about really often is how far sort of tech has come. Uh, Let's put that differently. How far engineering has come in applying rigor to their process, right? Um, Kanban boards and and sort of lean, lean startup and sort of these process methodologies that have allowed them, I think, to really have some some sort of great leaps forward in engineering. And yet product development still looks like people getting in a room with a whiteboard and just throwing things at the wall, right? Until they find something that sounds cool enough and then that becomes the product. That's a really terrible way of designing products, right? I think that we, you know, design thinking has sort of led us in this direction and I'm not sure that it's the direction we want to be in. I think you have to sort of start with a problem and think about the world as it exists uh, when you are successful. And then you need to board back to, well, what do you need to build to do that, right? If you think about something like Get Raised, for, let's take it as a product metaphor. Let's step away from feminists, just take it as a product metaphor, right? There are, we could have built the 10 millionth app that was like women should, like we're going to do a pay gap calculator or we're going to do another marketing thing. No, we said, okay, the world when we are successful is, doesn't have a pay gap. Why is there a pay gap? Got together with a bunch of other psychologists, 
studied why there wasn't a pay gap, why there is a pay gap. Okay, well, women aren't asking as often and they have lower success rates when they do ask. Okay, so that means we need to get women to ask and we need to change the way they ask. Great, we're going to go do build a tool that explicitly does that, right? So it's really working backwards from the sort of solved problem to, okay, how do we get there, right? More than, well, this sounds interesting and cool. Like get raised on paper in a room when you write things on whiteboards, get raised does not sound very sexy. A letter generator, like not sexy. But um, I think as product people, we have to like break our how, break ourselves of this habit that is sexy, right? Um, and instead start looking at what solves the problem. It's Cause, amazing. Because the outcomes are sexy. Yeah, the outcomes are super sexy. Even if the outcomes are boring, right? Even if the outcomes are a 5% reduction in insurance fraud rates, if that's the outcome you care about, that's a really profitable profit, right? Like product right there. Go build that if that's the product you care about building. It's amazing how often to me, I sit down with with product-focused founders and they sort of say, you know, they describe what they're building and I'm sort of like, but why? And they're like, well, I want to solve this problem. And I'm like, is that the most direct way of solving this problem that you can think of, right? Like, here are 10 much simpler ways to solve that problem. Why did you pick this really complicated one? And they're like, well, it sounds cool. And I'm like, well, we don't need cool. I don't even get, like, it's so interesting. One of the things that I think you have to do as a product person what I love about engineers is that they don't, they're okay with not attaching their name to something. You'd be like, I ate a Lovelace. No one will, re- <laughs> it'd be se- right. decades from now, centuries from now, we'll remember you because you solved the gender wage gap. Or not. And I think that's okay. <laughs> that's what I love about engineers. Like engineers, like it's not about, I mean, they want to go and brag to their friends. I, I built the code behind X successful app and there is a niche community within doing that. But like none of them is trying to get on the nightly news, right? To be like, I was the engineer that coded that thing right there, right? And I think there's product people, too many people become product people because they, they want the public recognition for the products that they build. And I'm not saying public recognition is bad and I'm not saying that's not a fine motivation. I'm just saying like, you know that you are building the right product, where if I said, hey, if someone else built this better, would you be happy? Yes. Yes. If somebody built a better get raised, great. Awesome. So happy. So happy, right? What you want as a product person is to solve the problem. And if someone comes up with a better solution, you should be like, great, that solution. We're going to go build that instead because that's a much better solution than the one I originally designed. You know, it's this conviction but a loosely held belief that sort of you know you're willing to move away from so i want to ask you one more question before we get to our pay it forward where i ask all the guests um and i'm going to flip this question because the question is written uh, uh, with respect to mentoring and how women can approach men let's flip the question what should men be doing as mentors in the workplace to help women out more that's such a hard question. You know, what, you it, thought you'd get in this room and be easy, buddy? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I was, you know, I thought it was a Friday. Uh, it, it's a hard thing. I think, um, a pr- I think you have to hack on it like, like you hack on any product or any process, like get raised. Most people want a mentor. Most people want a wise friend helping them. How can you make that easier for them? One of the great examples that I always love is too much mentoring happens over drinks after work, right? Uh, women may have families to go home to. Men may have families to go home to, too, which is why, like, just— Why you have takeout and Diet Coke. That's why yeah. you have takeout and Diet Coke, and that's why I think that, like, you know, lunch is great, 
It's not sexy. It doesn't sound like a date. It's not threatening. Like, you know, there is this blurred line that happens if if a man volunteers to mentor a woman and then says, well, let's do it over drinks, like after work, it starts to just sort of go in a direction that even if that was meant totally sort of innocuously, um, in a direction that that you're just putting up another barrier. Right. You, you know someone somewhere is reading something into it. That's right. Um, whether it's either of the two of you or the people who are observing the relationship or, you know, whatever. Um, breakfast is a great example. N- breakfast is the least sexy meal of the day, right? Like, let's come in and have some yogurt together and do some mentoring does not sound like a date, right? And so I think men need to be more conscious. And, and I think men also need to get comfortable with the fact that, like, I think men are a little overscared. Well, what will it look like if I volunteer to mentor this woman? And the answer is it will look like if you're doing it right, it will look like you're mentoring her, right? Like I don't think the outside world is, is on such a witch hunt to, to sort of hunt you down that, that it will go negatively. All right. Here's the questions, pay it forward questions. I ask all the guests. I know. It's supposed to be quick, which I'm not very good. I like long answers. Short answers. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, this is to scare you some more. All right. What are your primary sources of information? People. How do you discover new information? People. <laughs> what book are you reading? Uh, I read an author at a time, everything they've written. So I'm working my way through Stephen King. So right now I'm reading a collection of short stories from him. I did that with Kirk Vonnegut. Um, we can discuss that after. <laughs> do you have any rituals or habits you swear by as a CEO? Wake up, work, sleep. That's a good habit. Love it. Who are the three entrepreneurs or leaders you admire? I mean, that's such a complicated... I'm going to give a longer answer to this one. Sorry. It's a complicated question because I think the more you admire someone, the more you also give yourself room to to be critical of them. So I think Sachi is a great leader, um, but I'm also very critical of him in lots of ways. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have sort of a, a... occasional relationship with Sheryl Sandberg, and I think she's really, really, really great. Um, and I actually think um, Gina Bianchini is really awesome. I'm not going to disagree with your answers. What is the best advice you ever received? Before going to college, um, one of the places that was competing for me to go there found an alma mater, got me on the phone with them, and the, kid, and the guy said, go to this other college. And I said, why? And he said, think of your life in three sections. Learn, earn, serve. You don't have to do all three at the same time. And it's okay for you to just go and learn and rack up some debt and then take a job that it pays some money and then retire early and serve. Are there any particular myths you'd like to dispel for our listeners? Myths? Oh, this is, I have so many myths. The gender wage gap is a real problem. Um, (laughs) White guys can be feminists. Well, that one I think we, I hope we know at this point. Um, uh, I'll take one that's very pernicious, which is, uh, that people get fired for asking for a raise. You know, I've done this for five years now with with tons of people, and it just like I interviewed before even Bill get raised. We interviewed tons and tons and tons of HR people, and they were all like, "That has never happened. That's never happened. Nobody's getting fired for asking for a raise unless you are asking for a raise in the most egregious, jerky way possible. But if you came in and said, "Here's data that shows I'm underpaid," no one is firing you. What words of advice would you give our listeners about taking risks and closing the confidence gap? Control your environment. It's really hard to change who you are. It's really hard to psych yourself up. But if you can make the environment around you one that that leads to the actions that you want, 
that's great. I mean, if you want to lose weight, don't keep a bunch of cookies in the house. And what does think broad mean to you? I had such a fascinating discussion when they asked me to come on this show about this very topic. Um, I actually, because I'm a feminist, immediately read it as, like, broad as in female. Um, uh, And so I'm going to stick with that. I'm going to say think broad, at least in this context, at least in this moment, is really about thinking about women and the larger issues that women face. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Broad Mike. We welcome your feedback. Find us on Facebook, where you will have show notes and additional references for a deeper dive into today's topic. Subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. Please review our podcast on iTunes, which will help other listeners discover Broad Mike and grow the Broad Mike community. Broad Mike is produced by Christy Mirabel with editing by John Marshall Media. Our executive producer is Sarah Weinheimer. Think Broad.